the National Archives podcast series, Customs and Excise Service Records, presented by Janet Dempsey. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the National Archives and in particular to this introduction to the records for Customs and Excise Officers. I'm going to talk very briefly about the history of customs and excise and then move on to where you can actually locate the records for individual officers. There'll be a short time at the end when I can take some questions. But before we start, and I'd just like to share with you some thoughts on taxation. The art of taxation consists of plucking the goose as to obtain the largest possible amount of feathers with the smallest amount of hissing. This was actually a comment made by Jean-Baptiste Colbert, Master of Finance under Louis XIV. Slightly more scathing was Dr Samuel Johnson's definition of the excise from his first edition of his dictionary, in which he described excise, a hateful tax levied upon commodities and adjudged not by the common judges of property, but by wretches hired by those to whom the excise is paid. When the commissioners of excise read this, they contacted the Attorney General, William Murray, to ask if this was libelous. He answered that he believed that the statement did indeed constitute defamation, but suggested that the commissioners should give Dr Johnson the opportunity to change his definition before pursuing any legal action. The commissioners wrote a very nice letter to Dr Johnson, and he flatly refused to alter his work. And the same definition was published in later editions. However, no legal action was ever taken against Dr. Johnson, and one has to wonder whether his definition just became the common default for excise. So a brief history of customs. The term customs applied to customary payments or dues of any kind, whether they were regal, episcopal, ecclesiastical, until it eventually became restricted to duties payable to the king. As far as is known, the first attempt to set up a centralised customs system in England was made by King John at the Winchester Assizes of 1203, when a duty of 1 50th was imposed on imports and exports. In 1275, Edward I appointed collectors, who were actually known as customers, and later controllers, and these officials kept accounts and issued the licences to export wool. However, it was in the reign of Elizabeth I that the first serious attempts were made to control this rapidly increasing trade. And in 1565, rules, orders and directions were issued, making it illegal to load or discharge goods anywhere other than at legally appointed ports and quays. Customers, collectors, controllers and searchers in every port within the realm were required to send in returns to the Court of Exchequer. And these port books do still exist and may be found in the series E190. And these run from 1565 to 1798. OK, customs records were not actually systematically kept and preserved until 1671, when a permanent board of commissioners of customs was established. And in 1909, the separate boards of customs and excise were amalgamated, becoming HM Customs and Excise, who we all know and love. So, a brief history of the excise. In 1626, Charles I issued a commission to 33 lords to inquire into the levying of an excise. Customs hardly touched the pockets of ordinary citizens, but an excise was different. 
everybody would have to pay, and the opposition was so great, the project was abandoned for very many years. However, the outbreak of the Civil War put the issue of an excise back on the agenda, as both royalists and parliamentarians needed money to meet costs of arms and men. And the first ordinance of excise was that of the 13th of May, 1643. The excise revenue then established was even more far-reaching than the present system. In order to amass as much money as possible, the excise revenue of the day consisted of taxes on an enormous number of articles, both home-produced and imported, and with taxes of, at every point of production on sale, import, export and manufacture. The government had all the bases covered and could raise, raise rates unhindered whenever the occasion demanded. In the period of the Restoration, the excise revenue was firmly established. At the time of the returns of Charles II, the revenues of customs and most of the crown lands remained largely intact. But the ancient revenues of the feudal Jews had been allowed to lapse. So in recompense, it was decided that the royal revenue should have half the existing excise revenue, to be known as the hereditary excise while the other half was granted to Charles II for life only. So for 20 years, all the excise raised actually went directly to the king. In 1683, the excise was placed under the direct administration of commissioners and a board of excise was established. From this day onwards, accounts, warrants and minutes were maintained and that's the records that we have here at the National Archives. During the reign of William III, the necessities of the French wars required the reorganisation of the finances of the country, and excise duties multiplied rapidly. But the new taxes went to the state, not into the king's private purse. In 1707, following the Act of Union, an excise board was set up in Edinburgh to administer the taxes in Scotland, and was largely based on the English model. A large number of English excise officers were sent up north to administer these taxes, which, as you can imagine, proved extremely unpopular. It made it difficult to enforce, and it, especially when you consider the, the remote parts of Scotland and the Highlands. In 1849, the excise service was sub subsumed into the inland revenue. And in 1909, as we've mentioned earlier, customs and excise became one and the same. So who are customs and excise, and what's the difference? Customs officers collected duty on imports, prevented smuggling, and were so, because of that, were largely based in the ports. Excise officers were responsible for ensuring payment of tax on home-produced goods and could literally be based anywhere. Just to say, at this point, the excise was a very different form of tax. Customs had been regarded as, by this, this time as an ancient tax. People were used to customs and people largely weren't affected by customs duties. However, the excise was very different. It was a tax on home-produced goods. It touched the purses of almost everyone and it was dreadfully unpopular. So much so that in a riot near Smithfield in 1647, the excise office was burned down. And from time to time, there were similar but smaller riots right throughout the country. However, it was such a, a, a means of revenue that there was no way the Crown were ever going to go back on this. Okay, 
So where to look for the records? Okay, well, first of all, start with published and printed sources. We have our own guides here, the TNA Research Guide D38, which covers both customs and excise. And for the records that we actually have on film and fish, we have leaflets 5J and 5K. Available in the library is a series of Ham's yearbooks for the customs and excise. These are a really valuable source for customs for the late 19th and early 20th century and from the excise from about 1910. They contain details of both officers and of ports and stations. There's also the parliamentary papers available on opera while you're on site and they're searchable by, by name. And when you eventually find your records and you find all these weird and wonderful terms and job descriptions, consult McCoy's Dictionary of Customs and Excise. The main series of records for customs for England, Scotland and Wales are Cust 18 and Cust 19, which are pay lists, and these cover the period 1675 to 1829, with that nice break there, 1813, 1814. Cus 39, staff lists from 1671 to 1922. However, because customs and excise are such an unpopular force, there have been a lot of fires at Customs House. <laughs> so, unfortunately, the staff lists are incomplete. Cus 28, minute books, which cover 1734 to 1885. These are actually a really, really good source um, for genealogy because they, you can actually chart a career through the minute books because they list promotions, postings, retirements. They also re um, record any praise or censure, so if your ancestor was a bit of a bad lad, he'll be in there. And Cust 48, Treasury Correspondence, which covers 1668 to... 1839. Again, another valuable source because nothing happens without someone paying for it, and that's usually the Treasury. Just an example of what you can actually find in CUS 39, and this is the entry into service for Nicholas Robiliard, and he's actually surveyor for the building and repairing of sloops, boats, and acts of navigation. And as you can see, he replaced John Milligan Steppings. So we move forward 25 years, and this is the entry for Nicholas Robilliard in the superannuation record books, again within Cus 39. He actually retired in 1846, aged 75, after 35 years in the service, all of which can be followed through in Cus 39. From an annual salary of £500, he received a superannuated allowance of £350, roughly 70%, and he died eight years later in 1854. So you see, they were, they were actually very well-paid jobs for, for the time. Another valuable source are the Outport letter books. They are in record series Cust 50 right through to Cust 114, and the records consist of original correspondence of local customs collectors and other officers with the Board of Customs in London. 
They are actually one of the best sources of genealogical information, even though they contain no family details. They do give very, very in-depth detail on a man's career. The letter books for smaller ports can usually be found with the larger neighbours. There are annual returns containing ages, capacities. What we mean by capacities is how they were employed. Promotions, retirements, reprimands, etc. And for these records, coverage is best for the 19th century. These are usually indexed internally, so if you know a year that your ancestor was serving, go to that year and there is an index which will mention either him by name or by the, the particular capacity he's employed and it is possible to trace backwards and forwards on these as well. And this is an example of what you'll find. This is part of a register of returns of ages and capacities for the 43 customs officers at Whitehaven in Cumberland. If you see highlighted there the name of Richard Wordsworth, uncle of the poem William Wordsworth. He's shown in this record as an additional waiter and searcher and he was recorded as attending his duty well. However, the return of the 5th of January 1777 stated that his behaviour has been very improper. By the time of the next annual report, however, he'd been promoted to Acton Land Surveyor and addressed as a very good officer. The letter books for Whitehaven revealed that the local collector had made substantiated allegations of fraud against Wordsworth and a number of his colleagues. He himself was then found guilty of serious misconduct and sacked for embezzlement in May 1777. And Richard Wordsworth was himself the collector by 1778. So don't go telling porkies about your colleagues. Okay, Ireland is slightly different. And while you may find records of officers for Ireland within the records that I've just mentioned, there are separate series that just deal primarily with Ireland. Cust 20 are the salary books and establishment lists from 1684 to 1826. Of particular interest are pieces 154 to 159, as they list the appointment of all the customs officers for Ireland. And Cust 39, piece 161, are superannuation and widow's pension records. Okay, so supplementary series. And what we mean by supplementary series is any series where we might find incidental mention of these officers. You will certainly find them in T42, which are the pay lists for England and Wales, and they cover 1716 to 1847. T43, again, pay lists, but these are for Scotland and cover roughly the same period. And for the very brave-hearted, there's the usual wealth of information in T1. Now, I say brave-hearted because these papers are accessible via Treasury calendars from 1557 to 1745. And for the period 1719 to 1729 and 1746 to 1782, you need to consult the red paper list in the reading room. And after 1782, the records are indexed in T2, T4, T108. And if you really need more information, have a look at Research D39 and Very Best of British. <laughs>
Okay, so we've had a look at customs. Let's move on and have a look at the rec records for excise. And again, we'll start with those for England, Scotland and Wales. Very exciting series is Cust 116, entry papers 1820 to 1870. I say a very exciting series because they are really easy to get into. We've actually just finished a cataloguing project, which means these records are now searchable by name. So if you go into the catalogue, type in the, in the name that you're looking for and restrict your search to Cust 116. If he's there, it'll come up straight away with the piece you need to order. Cust 47, again, the minute books of the Excise Board. Again, they contain details of posting, promotions, discipline, retirements, etc. And again, it's possible to chart a career. They are arranged chronologically, so it is important to know at least one date for service. Cust 39, um, pension records 1856 to 1922. And then Cust 48, treasury correspondence. Again, these are in 144 volumes, arranged chronologically but indexed internally. Now, I did say about the Cust 116, and this is a typical search that you will get up. And you can see this is actually for a John Dempsey, no relation, just total random name search, into the excise service in 1862. The original documents within this series usually consist of two letters which are folded together. The first is a letter of recommendation which gives the name of the applicant, his age, place of birth, marital status but no details of his wife, and a character reference. So from a genealogical point of view, really valuable information there. The second letter is from the excise officer responsible for the applicant's training, and it states whether he is proficient in writing, spelling and arithmetic. Within a couple of the CUST 116, we've actually found some of the tests that they had to take, um, particularly for arithmetic. I'll pass. And an exa nice example here from CUST 48, and this is Treasury approval granted in July of 1771 for the promotion of Robert Fawcett to collector at Liverpool. We mentioned earlier about pay, and it was, it was a very good job to have. And generally speaking, these, unless you did something wrong and were thrown out of the service, these were jobs for life. And if you just have a look at the bottom line of that letter there, it says he's promoted to collector at Liverpool in the room of Johnson, deceased. So literally these jobs were dead men's shoes. Again, records for Ireland, slightly different series. Cust 110 are the establishment books and they cover a very short period of just 1824 to 1833 when ex the island had its own board of excise. And then Cust 111 are the records of the Irish Revenue Police. Now, the Irish Revenue Police were reorganised into a force as the result of the Irish Illicit Distillation Island Act of 1831. As I say, these records can be found in Cust 111. It's just 14 volumes and they're arranged chronologically.
Okay, supplementary series for the exercise. T44, which consists of 57 bundles of quarterly salary lists. Again, it says they cover 1705 to 1835, but there are huge gaps due to the various fires. T45, um, Scot Scottish equivalent, covers 1708 to 1832, and there are just 10 bundles of those. And as mentioned earlier, for the bold and the brave, a wealth of information about excise can be found in T1. So, you've exhausted what we have here. What next for your research? Where else to look? Well, the HM Customs and Excise National Museum is now actually co-located with the Merseyside Maritime Museum and HM Customs and Excise Information Service. The HM Customs and Excise Museum holds the national collection of the Department of Customs and Excise. They hold a full collection of Ham's yearbooks. We don't. We only have partial runs of these books. But it includes extensive displays of tools of the jobs, prints, paintings, photographs. And if you're ever up north, it's definitely worth a visit. HM Customs and Excise Information Service. They're not open to visitors, but they do hold all the details of any service post-1930. The Society of Genealogists hold customs and excise staff lists from around 1890 to 1922. They also have the inland revenue establishment lists from 1881 to 1922. And they have an index, a card index, which lists the volumes from 1922 onwards, which is still held by, largely by the customs and excise. As I've said, though, because some of these records are very recent, some of this information is still closed. Also, another very valuable source of information is the Courtney Library and Cornish History Archive. If you have an ancestor who was in the Cornish Customs and Excise, they are definitely worth consulting. National Archives of Scotland hold records of officers before 1830, who served in Scotland, obviously. The National Archives of Ireland and Dublin holds, again, records of customs officers from about 1923. And the Public Record Office of Northern Ireland, again, holds records of customs officers from 1923. So, thank you all very much for coming. This event was recorded live on the 28th of October 2008 at the National Archives Q. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>